Batman and the House of Mystery. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Martin Gray. Taking you through a classic superhero slash horror team up, Batman and the House of Mystery from The Brave and the Bold, number 93, cover dated December 1970, January 1971. That was bi-monthly. And Martin, it's Halloween week when this comes out. Is this your only celebration or are there some fancy dress parties in Scotland we should know about? This is my only celebration, pretty much. I mean, I did attend a spooky party on board a cruise ship I was travelling on for work last October, and it was super brilliant with creepy ice sculptures, the crew in costume, and spooky, ooky food. Because I'd been to another on-board event that night, so I was in a tuxedo, but it's a costume, I suppose. Still, it was really, really good night. Otherwise, I don't recall ever having been to a Halloween do. Halloween in Scotland, where I'm living, is basically a kid's thing. Scots used to have a tradition known as guising, as in disguise, in which children would go from home to home in costume and do a party piece. They'd maybe recite a poem, tell a joke, whatever, in return for sweeties and perhaps a spot of apple bobbing. That's pretty much died out as US TV and films brought the idea of trick-or-treating, demanding chocolate with menaces, to our shores. But where I'm originally from in England, County Durham in the northeast, would not bother anyone at their home. We'd just wander around the streets with a turnip lantern crying, Jack Shiner Maggie! It was... Very entertaining, obviously. <laughs> yeah, because I think Halloween, as, um, as as it is celebrated, is more or less a North American invention. It seems to be, well, certainly the way it's become fixated in the world's view. But I think originally it came, you know, came from more from our shores and from Ireland. And but you know, yeah, yeah. But now you know the U.S. rules Halloween, and it's not so bad. I was once driving on a bus from the airport to New York through Jersey City. And it was like, oh, it was about the first week of October. And it was Halloween things everywhere on the trees and on the street. And it was really bizarre how much people are into it. It's also one of those holidays that is more, you know, you, you, when you're a kid, you're doing the candy thing. But then there's a lull. And then as an adult, it's about the fancy dress. You know, so a lot of adults celebrate. And as for me, I, I'm only celebrating basically. I'm not doing any costume this year. I'm kind of sick of it because I, I always hate making costumes. So I used to do it. I used to hold the Halloween party at home, but now I'm just uh, I'm over it. The only thing I do with October is basically watch a horror movie every day sort of thing. But that's, you know, watching movies is it's just part of my routine anyway. But that's about it as far as that and doing a podcast that is Halloween themed are basically going to be my celebrations this year. Yeah, similarly. I mean, my I always make sure I listen to the House of Frankenstein podcast on sure. the Fire, Fire and Water Network, which are absolutely wonderful. And, you know, if a new Midnight the Podcasting Hour turns up, that's always brilliant. It will. It will or has, depending I on... I believe so. I don't understand in, why in America and the US people actually get dressed up in costumes that aren't even remotely spooky, just like as celebrities or superheroes. It's like, where's the spookiness? I, I think there's a lot of people that just don't like horror movies or monsters or they're creeped out by it. So how to do Halloween anyway is, you know, let's dress as Spider-Man. Well, fair enough. You could maybe, as you in Canada, give Justin Trudeau a few sort of dressing up tips. We should do a podcast just about that one year. Uh, I'll talk to the guys. <laughs> <laughs> do, do. I'll be listening. Well, let's get into this. In each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick a franchise to defend in this case. So in this case, Martin, which one do you want? I shall represent the House of Mystery. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Siskoid takes Batman. Batman. <laughs> 
And as is customary, we'll preface with reasons why we like the guest franchise. I can't say guest character, guest franchise. Martin, what's so great about the House of Mystery? Well, I believe that every fella has to have some roots, even if they are connected to a swamp filled with the filest of monsters, which is gargoyles, werebeasts, and what have you. Also, I loved the boot when I was growing up, because you never knew when one of the formulaic twist-ending tales would prove to be actually really rather great. Eventually, it gave us the I Vampire series, which was a tremendous serial starring a tremendous bloodsucker, and I just love vampires, found them very sexy. Plus, I loved Kay and the Caretaker with a sarcastic take on horror hostings and uh, the little funny pages by the likes of Dave Manak and Sergio Aragones. Sure. That's one of the things I liked about it. Is it, it, it was a horror ha- anthology, but it had a lot of humor. Sergio Aragones, of course, those pages, Kane's General Snark, and he, it even dared do stories where, like, for example, there's one where uh, Gil Kane, artist Gil Kane, is chained to a drawing table by demons uh, who may or may not be drawn to look like his editors. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've read that one. That's really, really very impressive. And he was, he was enjoying the joke himself, I think, but I've worked with artists, so that's, yeah, I'd say forget the drawing table, find them a nice dark basement, preferably with lots of spiders and scorpions and dusty wine. I mean, each issue you had a number of stories, so if you didn't like one, you might like another, and a lot of great artists worked on it. It was a good tryout book as well, I'm pretty sure, because you could do like a four or eight page story in there um, and, and just showcase your talents. Or if you, if you wanted to, yeah, I can do another, uh, you know, I can do another eight pages this month. Okay, like do a file story for House of Mystery or House of Secrets or something. So in there, you had a lot of stories that people don't necessarily remember anymore because they were just like these little one-offs. But when I was a kid, they used to pad these big French language anthologies, black and white French language anthologies. So you had like your Fantastic Four and your Flash. And and then in between, you had stories from House of Mystery and House of Secrets just to pad up the page count. So there was always like these really creepy stories in the middle of my superhero stories. And I, I didn't always know what to make of them. That sounds rather a hoot. I mean, yeah, in the UK, in our anthology stories, comics, they're all, they're all, because they were original to the UK, they were always planned with sort of a mix of, until the like of 2000 AD came along and Battle Pitcher Week had all one theme. They always used to you know, be a mix of, you know, humor strips, football strips, war strips, horror strips and... I miss that kind of thing. And, and you, you are right about how House of Mystery and Unexpected and the like were a training ground for artists and writers. I think comics today have suffered for the lack of people being trained to write shorter stories. Yeah, no, you're right. And especially since even the superhero form, the one-off issue is kind of a, a relic from the past. It is. It's, it's such a shame. I mean, there's, there's DC's got another of their anthologies out this this month, I think it's a secret of Sinister House, eighty page giant. Right. I've stopped just a few stories in because it's not the most grabby of books, you know. Just give give me one of the old House of Mystery creators who wasn't necessarily famous, but you know knew how to write. There's a trick to it that they not all writers today know how to to get. I, there are exceptions, obviously. One offs are the bread and butter of the team up tradition, uh, especially in in the Bronze Age. All of these team-ups are basically one-offs. And this this one we're going to look at is a one-off. It stars Batman. It stars the House of Mystery, which is unusual. I don't think Batman needs an introduction. But let's talk about the House of Mystery's publication history for those who don't know it. Uh, Martin, would you do the honors? I'd be delighted. Thank you, Siskoid. Yeah, the House of Mystery series began in 1951 to feed the desire of kids who were growing out of superhero and humour books for something media. Werewolves, witches and all kinds of fun folks, such as the eerie Mr. Morton from issue 20, populated the earliest issues. 
but they were defanged with the coming of the Comics Code Authority, and the book became more of a science fiction anthology. By the 1960s, you saw John Johns debuting, well, not debuting, sorry, transferring over from Detective Comics, and Robbie Reed's Diary H for Hero strips began. By the end of the decade, it was a spooky book once more under Joe Orlando editing, if still a little bloodless. It was more surprise-ending tales with creepy settings than outright horror, but the cleverness could be appreciated, and as you say, the art was often excellent. And along with sister books, The House of Secrets, Unexpected, Ghosts and Witch Hours, it did indeed become a training ground for such future comic greats as Marv Wolfman, Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein. In the late 70s, it was an 80-page dollar comic for quite a while, for a couple of years. And then after going back to regular size, it birthed Andrew Bennett, the aforementioned Eye Vampire, before falling sales eventually led to cancellation in the early 1980s. The title's been revived several times since then, for example, Elvira's House of Mystery, but the original run has never been better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and now they, they've sort of decided that it was an <clears throat> an IP to be exploited. You know, essentially in the New 52, you had, it was like John Constantine's house and it flew around in dimensions or something. Yeah, yeah. It's a spaceship. It is. It's it's whatever you want. And it's like, I'd actually just love to see, again, what you can probably guess, I'd just love to see just a nice traditional House of Mysteries anthology portmanteau type book where, you know, if KNFP in, that, in, the, in the DC universe was really, you know, special. I mean, I loved it. I think, what was it the House of Mystery rather than the House of Secrets that was in Blue Devil for a while? Uh, the House of Weirdness, but I think it was Kane. Ah. It was Kane, and he it, so they yeah. moved house or something. <laughs> and of course... Neil Gaiman would put Kane in in the Sandman comics and say that these houses were actually in the dreaming and all these weird spooky stories we dreamed of them they were nightmares or they were you know so they kept them alive or Neil Gaiman kept them alive in a sort of in a DC universe proper rather than a horror host universe where they're talking to the reader but basically they're talking to our subconscious through these stories so it was an interesting conceit and I think now the whole Sandman universe, we can get these characters again, telling these sorts of stories again. Like, I, I think Sandman actually pulled that off, where many of the arcs were people telling stories. And instead of having, you know, like, uh, I don't know, seven issues with Sandman going down to hell, you had five or six issues where each story is a one-off. And I think Neil Gaiman was one of those who could pull off the uh, the short story. That's, that's very true. Yeah, I think yeah, my favourite of that lot of type of stories in some ways uh, with the like of Calliope and uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats, was it? They were wonderful little stories. Yeah, uh, and Dream of a Thousand Cats won like literary awards that it <laughs> normally comic book stories don't win in that category. So it is a well-remembered... I, I say it's that one, but it isn't, right? It's it, I think the one that won an award was the, uh, the Midsummer Night's Dream one. But anyways, The Dream of a Thousand Cats was a terrific story that I often reread. So yeah, I mean, it's I'm saying it's alive and well. I mean, this was the 90s. So it's still 25 years ago. Hey, it's a blink <laughs> of an eye to someone as old as me. Uh, all right, well... How does Batman and the House of Mystery get together? This is uh, an unusual tale. Let us tell you the story. Let us be the storytellers. Uh, it's called Red Water, Crimson Death by writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams. The goon is on the run. He comes to a lonely-looking abode which shimmers into reality before him. 
but the eerie figure behind the door won't give him sanctuary. Batman confronts the criminal, but before he can disarm him, the Dark Knight uncharacteristically trips on the House of Mystery's steps. <laughs> Poor old Bruce, he's not a graceful cat, he's just an ungainly bat. But the crook's gun misfires and Batman punches him in the face. Commissioner Gordon is soon on the scene to take him into custody and Batman confesses that he stumbled like a rank amateur. Gordon suggests a month-long vacation and hands the Bat a steamship ticket to Ireland. Batman must be tired because he agrees. Those non-dead guys, they just haven't got what it takes. As the cruise ship nears the Aran Isles off the coast of Ireland, a thunderstorm brews and incognito Bruce Wayne catches a bouncing ball before it goes into the water. That's how he meets Sean. A boy who later goes out on deck during the storm to shout into the wind for his uncle. That's winds in gust, not too many baked beans in the ship canteen. And into the drink he goes. Bruce is quickly over the railing himself and almost impossibly manages to save the boy from drowning. Silly Sean pleads to Batsy, turn me loose, it's me granda. That big bearded face Batman also sees in the waves must be an hallucination. Or has Brucey been sniffing his bat under ooze again? Ship employees soon rescue the two of them and treat their hypothermia. If Batman was weary before, he's shot now. He just wants to sleep the rest of the way to Ireland. Looking for pajamas? He finds the bat costume Alfred put in one of his suitcases. He throws it overboard. Dear listener, don't you just hate it when you're on a vehicle and it makes a schedule stop? Bruce is so confused when the ship calls it an island, but the patient bores and explains that this is where the weird kid's journey ends. No dummies, I don't mean he dies. Or do I? Bruce Wayne follows, figuring the quiet, isolated Aaron Isles are exactly what he needs. In that entitled millionaire way, Bruce persuades the crewman to let him off there too. Passport control? Rules? Ah, those are for the proles, not the high and mighty rich guy. He joins Sean in a wee motorboat heading for the jetty, where they're met by the brat's Uncle Derry. He's as unconcerned as the sailor was about the confirmed bachelor, desperate to follow a parentless kid he's just met. Don't they know Brucey has form? Anyhow, Uncle Derry insists Bruce stays with them, and soon they're all chowing down on tasty mulligan stew and singing Paddy McGinty's goat while wearing green t-shirts. After Shawnee goes to bed to dream of his hero, good King Hugh, one-time ruler of the island, Derry tells Brucey that the kid's parents died a year ago after eating fish caught from the blood-red waters around the landmass. A curse on the good Irish people. Our Noel hero thinks to himself that it's more likely something called Dino Flagellates, which, well, why flog a dead horse? Go to sleep, Brucey. I'll even serenade you. Rockabye, Brucey. Batman wakes up. He's in his costume, but that's impossible. The only explanation is that he's gone mad. Then he hears more madness still. Oh, look, Sean's gone sleepwalking. Go on, kid. Go for a swim in your PJs. Batman jumps out the window after Sean, but is waylaid by a trio of local toughs armed with two-by-fours. They seem to think he's a creature from beyond the grave, but they stop coming at him once he explains he's as human as they are. Did you hear the story of Good King Hugh? Rule the people with fairness, died in his bed, and now, after hundreds of years empty, his castle is suddenly haunted by ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go, ah, in the night. Well, that's what the villagers tell bats. What a superstitious, cowardly lot smiles our zero to himself until a demon visage appears before them. 
and the still sleepy Shani is running towards it. Batman should let the villagers go after the kid. He's in no condition, but he's Batman. He can't help himself. As thunder and lightning crash around him, the Dark Knight loses track of Sean. The Crimson Wraith warns him away. On a hunch, Batman throws a rock in its direction and breaks the screen it was merely projected on. Behind it, he sees Sean crossing the drawbridge into the castle. He follows and barely makes it before the gate falls. Oh, shame. Was I the only one looking forward to a flat bat? While he looks for a stealthy way across the courtyard, Batman suddenly notices a trapdoor at his feet. Yeah, of course an entirely unhidden hatch with a super obvious handle isn't the castle's beer cellar. It's the entrance to a secret passageway. Oh, hang on. Batman walks the secret corridors under the castle until he hears voices above. It's a pair of goons sharing a drink and expository dialogue. Turns out they're working for a Mr. or Miss Big who wants to scare the islands away with fake hauntings, then move in and steal the fishing rights. And if Sean's succumbing to a fatal dose of poison helps, her arm, begor, and all that potato-munching palaver, is there anything scarier than big business? Batman jumps them and gives them the beat down, though he takes a nasty cut from a sword. Then he interrogates them about where they're keeping Sean. He's down the corridor with the boss. Though wounded, he has no time to lose. He races down the corridor in question, but it splits into two. Something pulls him to the right. He can't explain it, but obeys it. And it turns out to be the correct choice. It's Sean being serenaded by two more stinkers. They're trying to pour poison down his ickle thwarts. Batman is on them, and after making short work of the thug, he confronts the boss. Who, dear listener, who is the mysterioso behind this creepy confusion? Is it the Joker doing his laughing fish bit? Is it Master of Terror the Scarecrow? Maybe well-known criminal castle keeper the monk? No, it's Aloysius Cabo. Fish farmer of fear, but he's not without charm, our Aloysius. Telling Bats that a scratch he suffered a few pages back has been infected with one of his poisonous chemicals. The crappy crusader is about to go on a one-way trip to hero heaven, unless he can choose the right beaker from a pair before him. One contains the cure, the other something far, far worse even than Alfred's tepid English tea. But what's that above Bats? Are King Hugh's hands in an ancient portrait really moving, pointing not towards the beakers, but to a test tube in the background? Batman drinks from that test tube, rather than either of the beakers. Gluggity glug glug, drink little Batsy. But watch out for all the Aloysius, he's not happy you apparently outguessed his dirty trick of filling both beakers with killer Kool-Aid. Now he's pointing a gun at you. Good job that old heavy painting just happens to fall off the wall and strike his neck, like a guillotine back in the good old days of France. Batman checks his pulse and finds Cabot dead. He takes Sean in his arms and takes him home not understanding all the coincidences or how he got his costume back or what drew him down the right corridor or even why Sean wandered out into the storm twice. And maybe he'll never know. But we know, dear listeners, Batman entered a castle and found a house of mystery. <laughs> so you were the one that suggested this uh, this particular story martin what do we think of it uh, in general i like it i like it it's such a challenge to to a writer to you know to be able to combine a conceptual title with a regular superhero without actually having a superhero physically run into the house and meet kane and denny o'neill god bless him he was apparently very into being an irish american he was sometimes signing himself sergius or shaughnessy in the likes of super friends but I cringe every time a story is touching Irishness. I don't know whether you read Daredevil in, in the, in, I think it was the 80s or 90s. Sure, was, yeah. Yeah, a ridiculous character called The Gale. 
and a romantic terrorist called Gloriana or Gunrunner or something that Matt Murdock fell for. And, you know, it was meant to be all lovely Irish freedom fighters. And it was very, very strange when we were still at the height of the troubles in the UK. And the folk here are more like 19th century hammer film peasants and 20th century folk. It's quite surprising that Denny O'Neill didn't have the lucky charms leprechaun turn up to take a swing at Aloysius. <laughs> but he does, I mean, he, yeah, he crafts a clever tale. It's got loads of nice touches. I mean, Gordon Book and Batman a holiday and deciding, you know, that yes, Batman will take a month off his pure zany haney, but Batman reminding Kane of his Uncle Tommy, uncle from Transylvania. That's just great fun. And the irony, as in comic book irony, the denouement is classic House of Mystery. Uh, it's just a shame that editor Murray Boltonoff didn't catch the error that has Sean calling out to see for his uncle and then seeing his old grandpappy and calling for him again. They're like two ghostly moments, but they're not necessarily connected because they also want this to be a Batman story. So there is a scientific and a criminal justification for the for some of the supernatural elements so that Batman can go home and say, oh, well, it was all part of this plan, even though, wait, what about this? What about that? It's a mystery. Yeah, it's one of those things where you know you have you have to you have to ignore the fact that Batman you know works with spooky characters all the time in the JLA and JSA. But again, with it being in you know the Zany Haney, Earth B, Murray Boltonoff, Bob Haney realm, you just accept it as you know I say just a nice, interesting one-off story. I, I sort of flip back. You know, as soon as Batman took a month-long vacation, I was surprised this wasn't a Bob Haney script. He wrote a, a large portion of these Brave and the Bold stories. And he didn't care about continuity or you know, what does this mean for Batman's vengeful mission that he can just take a month off? I mean, sure, he, when he goes back to Gotham, it's it's a cesspool. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything's gone out of control by the time he comes back. But in a Bob Haney story, it's possible. So here, Denny O'Neill is really tapping into that Earth B sort of feeling with Brave and the Bold. He really does, but he, he, does, he does a good job of tapping into you know, the, the Joel Orlando House of Mystery type milieu for example in the introduction you know after after that opening scene when you know Kane then sets up the rest of the story and he says it he says that he's taking us to a place that's as cheery as a coffin and cold as a witch's kiss now do you think he really would have said a witch's kiss <laughs> i mean you did a good job with Kane's vernacular in in the synopsis that that storyteller that is dismissive of the hero that is sort of snarkly commenting on the action, because this is exactly how the team-up works. I mean, it's more than just Batman in a House of Mystery-type short story. You, you've also got the horror host, instead of a you know third-person omniscient narrator, it is Kane telling you the story, and he's sort of peeking from around the panels in the same way that he sometimes introduced the House of Mystery stories, and he's maybe even more more of a participant because he shows up again and again. But the uh, but you know the, the whole the lullaby or <laughs> all of that stuff is happening on the page, and you've got your cane uh, basically laughing and at Batman because Batman can't figure things out. You know, sort of wishing that Batman would fail is what Kane is doing. So it's it's a team up where Batman is not aware. That he's in the team up, but I think, but Kane is. It is. It's funny because, as you say, you know, sort of Kane, you know, Kane's taking the Mickey and sort of wanting him to fail, but he's also he is helping him by, you know, you know when he taps him on the shoulder and does indeed dress him in the costume and you know make sure he gets a little bit of sleep. So it's 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 clever. Yeah, he's, he's participant, but it's also a bit meta-fictive and it's it's just very very clever. I mean, you know, the the cod Irishness. It's yeah, it's just. A, bit of storytelling fun, I suppose, and it's probably patronising me to think that 
O'Neill wasn't aware of it, how cheesy it was at times. You know, I think it's just giving the reader what we want. It's a comic book trope of the day where uh, anyone who's not uh, an American is is probably being um, caricatured. You know, every time a superhero crosses over into Canada, it's it's the wilderness over here <laughs> sort of thing. So that's what readers were expecting. It's sort of like the iconic version. We can say it's culturally insensitive or we can say it's bad representation, uh, especially from today's perspective. But at the time, we could also say it's the iconic the superhero version of Ireland, the superhero version of, you know, because all these peasants who are afraid of Batman as if he were a demon in this universe, if you don't live in Gotham, you don't know about Batman, I guess. It's basically going to Transylvania and the peasants there, or the you know, the gypsies or whatever in Dracula movies or whatever. It is the, the gothic version of that culture. They live on that isolated island. You know, they <laughs> we're not in Dublin or anything. Absolutely. And, and you know, ev- every country does about every other country. And, you know, even though I'm, you know, I did my DNA a couple of years ago, 72% Irish. So, you know, I'm not offended. My three quarters <laughs> of my body. <laughs> it's all very sick. But no, it's just great stuff. Really, really enjoyable one-off story. Let's look at the art because, I mean, it's Neil Adams. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the artwork. And right away, I mean, from the cover, it is a castle, and the little Sean is being grabbed by a figure. This doesn't happen in the comic or anything. The figure is just like glowing eyes in the darkness, and the finger going, come hither, which is a classic House of Mystery cover. It's the one they use for the... um uh, showcase Treasure. presents, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's very very clever. So sort of, you're doing it again and putting putting Batman into it, you know. And also the way they have the logos next to each other becomes Batman. Dot dot dot. Do you dare into the House of Mystery? I love that because that was the logo of the House of Mystery. Yeah. Do you dare was part of the logo. So yeah, they they make a sentence out of it, and uh, so it's not Batman and the House of Mystery. It's Batman. Do you dare? Absolutely. Yeah. They've even brought across the, uh, the, the the big curly bat that they had on the DC Mystery books at the time, which perfectly suits Batman. You've put in written DC House of Mystery inside. It's it's just the perfect melding of you know the brave and the bold and the House of Mystery covers. Right. And uh, what about the interior? Do you like the art in there? Yeah, I'm you know big big Neil Adams fan. I'm, I much prefer stuff back here than than nowadays when you have the different production processes with the color in here. The color, well, the color's not exactly flat. It's you know you've got very very you know some very very nice little tones and sort of bits of lighting going. Going on and but it's, it's a bit simpler than it is nowadays and it just really serves as art well i mean having having cane being green all the way through just solid green well not solid but again shades of green it, it you know it both sort of tells you that he's apart from batman he's in the story but he's not in the story he's not in batman's story as far as batman knows but also the green what else evokes island as well as that pre-computer coloring there's a lot of texture there's a lot of shading in here that you would expect from later eras of coloring work so the colors here are you know pretty amazing uh and i mean there's a lot of great silent sequences which neil adams was always good at it's like neil adams is doing your pages the writers go oh well just we don't need captions Uh, and you get a lot of these silent bits like uh, you know the costume floating away in the water uh the bit with the medical treatment was just like a, a little montage uh even the fights are largely absent dialogue or thought bubbles or captioning, which a lot of comics uh, in the 70s, I mean, this is 1970, comics still did a lot of that, a lot of expositionary work, but 
Neil Adams' stories often didn't. As the, the art could carry it. And I think many of the writers respected that. And uh, so we see it here as well. Just Batman walking out of the castle at the end, and it's dawn. And it's like the color work is, is great. So I, I think that if you were to recolor this for, I don't know, the, the DC app or whatever, it would look garish. And I, I don't think it, it would be better than the original issue we're looking at. I, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's ex- just really, really expressive. I mean, I'm, I'm reading it up for both Omnibus and also on the, the D story, the Comixology app, and I think they use the same files for that. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Adams art is, as you say, it's just so expressive. I mean, he was, is, sorry, both, you know, superb storyteller, but he can also do clever little bits of showiness and things that, that don't distract from the story, but they just, you know, give you a new way into certain scenes. Like, for example, on, on the ninth page, you know, where Bruce is in the castle with Uncle Derry and the little boy Sean. There's a fantastic picture at the top of the page where you know, the angle is from behind. Sean's looking into the fire, but the camera, as it were, is looking from behind the fire. And the colourist done some, you know, some lovely sort of, you know, reds and oranges and whites to put across the idea of flames. And it's just just something you didn't see back then. You hardly ever see now. I mean, how many other artists would think to do that? I think you know Adams was was very good at that, finding like the odd angle, uh, looking at things from different perspectives. Yeah, and we're behind the fire, which puts us we're Kane. You know, we can be anywhere. We're we're like the spirit, and we can be inside the fire, and that makes it makes us a little bit or makes the story a little bit more hellish, which fits the tone. But if you look at that page, you do have the, the warm glow of the fire at the top, but then it's quickly darkness. And again, the colors really do the shading well. It's not, it doesn't look murky, which a lot of computer coloring shading does. Everything is clear, and yet you know that that's not a skin tone as seen in bright light, but it's still the right skin tone. I mean, there's no color credit. You know, I should check on some website or something, maybe knows. But the the entire artifact that is the comic book uh, looks lavish and rich in a way that a lot of four-color comics didn't. I mean, the colouring is so impressive. And, and what, what Adams did, I mean, what do you think of the scene where Bruce is fall, you know, falling into unconsciousness and Cabo is looking across at him? The way, the way that's done by Adams and the colours is just absolutely brilliant. And this is one of the more brightly lit parts of the story. And yet, you know, again, they're using the, the, those yellows and, and oranges. What's amazing here is how it's inked. Basically, because you've got those colors overlaid, but Cabot is sort of disappearing. He's not totally inked in, and it's it's Batman passing out. It's, his vision is being blurred, and that's an interesting way to to make it happen. Again, today with computer correction, they might do they might actually do an effect, you know, like a blurry effect. But Adams doesn't have access to that, so he's doing it with. Maybe photocopies and that kind of stuff. I know he did work with that kind of stuff. I've seen in interviews where he talked about that or just creating effects by manipulating the drawing. So I think this is maybe something like that. But immediately, you know that for that moment, you're in Batman's head. Again, the perspective changes. Uh, Certainly things have come into focus a little bit more. Gregory the Gargoyle has just told me that the the colouring on this issue was done by DC's production ace at the time, Jack Adler, Ah. who... And you remember he he wasn't he the guy who did those amazing grey tone the wash the grey wash covers he do just incredible things with DC's covers occasionally, whereby you know he'd just put a grey wash on the cover it would make things really pop. So this guy really did have a good eye for colour. Definitely. So already Neil Adams is a, a an illustrator a top notch illustrator of the time, uh, working with other production people that had the same eye for design for outright design. It's not just uh, you know comic book art. 
I think they're taking lessons from magazines, from contemporary art, from they're looking at how you can do things with the page that has never been done before uh, and give it that very designy look. So it makes complete sense that he's associated with this as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, really, it's Denny O'Neill's the <laughs> is the weakest part of this in a way because he still has, even though he's respecting the art, there are moments of dialogue that I find kind of ridiculous. You know, uh, Batman explaining why he dresses as a bat. <laughs> Brilliant. Personal reasons. <laughs> For personal reasons. Yeah, that's, that's all you get. No one questions it. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a very zany Haney kind of feel to it. Uh, even the way Cabot introduces himself. You know, he, he specifically says <laughs> what his business is, what his job is. I'm, you know, who does that? So th- there are some uh, some weird ticks in there, but for the most part, I think because Kane carries the narration, it's not the same kind of exposition. It's got character, it's got personality, it's uh, Kane's shtick, and you feel that even though there's somebody talking over the action, it's for the purpose of making this more of a House of Mystery story, and it's about atmosphere, and not just the writer having to tell you things. So. That, at least, works in its favour. It really is. I mean, when, when you get to the page where Batman's out in the storm and he's being confronted by the holographic wraith, say, page 14, and it's, you know, you've got the lightning coming down, the, the, the rain produced by just the colour, you know, Batman confronting the wraith, which actually, admittedly, does look like a highland cow floating in space. And even, you know, even the lettering by John Costanza, I don't remember this, seeing this very often, but when Batman thinks, it's in italics, which is... Just just a nice touch. I mean, this is an issue that graphically is playing with subtleties and making you understand what's happening better in a way. I mean, you don't register it, or you did, but you know, I didn't register the italics, but it's saying, well, okay, here we're in this space and here we're in this space. And in this case, we're in the mental space. There is a slight difference. You don't maybe realize it, but it makes the reading of it better or easier. Classic comic book letter, and of course, you know, John Constanza didn't he become associated with the wasn't he the Swamp Thing letter? I think so. He liked the horror realm, but again, I'm still just flicking back and forward, just being awesomed by the art, by the art and the color, and you know, things like you know, the use of Bendy dots for the sky, and the fact that Neil Adams is so good at drawing little kids, they're not like John Byrne homunculus people, it's just, <laughs> just wonderful stuff. All right, who fared better? Uh, this is an odd team-up, but still, we have to touch on the usual topics. First off, how well does this fit the two franchises' stories or atmospheres? Is this a Batman story, or is this a House of Mystery story? Yes. <laughs> I'd, say this, I'd say this is for once a tie, this spooky setting. It's classic Kane. But at this point, Daniel Neal and Neil Adams were regularly putting Batman into gothic tales. I mean, you know, you always mean, you know, sort of evil women in coaches and up in castles and things. So you could call it a Batman story. You could call it a House of Mystery tale. And I can't see anyone arguing. Or would you? Well, we have to. So um, it's weird because very few House of Mystery stories, if any, have, you know, a, a recurring or even a superhero character uh, as part of them. But there's nothing that would prevent it. I mean, it, really, we're telling a short story, a spooky short story with a twist ending. It's Twilight Zone, or but we don't use our superhero characters in there. But what if we did? 
would that change the, the nature of the story? Would that not be appropriate for House of Mystery or House of Secrets? So that's a question we can ask. But in the end, so, you know, you're looking at Batman all the way through, but the fact that it is told by Kane, does that make it a House of Mystery story that just happens to have Batman in it? Or is it a Batman story with that conceit, that, that filter? That's actually a very good point. I think you're pushing me towards thinking it's more of a House of Mystery story. All right. Well, but, but it is one of those where mm, it's a toss-up. I'm not sure what to say just because of the, the weirdness of it. What about cool moves? I guess the house, Kane, <laughs> what is the coolest move pulled by the story, I guess? Well, I mean, my man Kane is the master of subtlety in this one, but I would say that in the first scene where, as far as I'm concerned, Kane causes the thug's gun to misfire when Batman trips so that Batman doesn't get sort of killed just because of he's having a little bit of tripping because of tiredness. You know, Kane saves Batman's life. Kane is the marvelous hero here. Okay, yeah, sure. Batman, for his part, is uh, well trusting his instincts on uh, on the antidote, for example. All the way through, he's trusting that he's being pointed in the right direction. If he questioned it, he'd probably be dead. So uh, that is probably his coolest move. Although being super tired and yet jumping into the ocean. Uh, during a storm or breaking two by fours with his elbows. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty badass by itself as well. Weird or dumb moves? It's easy for Batman. It's taking a month off from Gotham City. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the weirdest uh, conceit that this story pulls on the Batman side of things. Because the rest of the way is kind of manipulated into the, the story. What about the house? Well, I'd say the house doesn't have any dumb moves. I think the house is exemplary throughout. But I think weird moves just randomly popping up in Gotham. It's the first time that I can recall the place appearing in the recognisable DC Universe. Okay, it's Earth B, but it's DC Universe. And it's a bit of a precursor to the House of Weirdness and Kane becoming supporting characters in Blue Devil several years later, as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm, that's true. I don't know. There's also a DC Comics Presents with Superman dares to enter the House of Mystery. I'd have to check that out to see if it manifests physically. But yeah, it wouldn't really be a physical place until it's a metaphysical place in the dreaming in the 90s or the late 80s. And, and, and then, you know, it's flying around the post-Flashpoint DCU for a while. But it wasn't really a physical place that you could visit, like Baron Winter's mansion or something. You know, uh, this is one of the few times, and it does seem weird, especially since it's in the middle of a neighborhood in Gotham. It's, you know, uh, and it still looks like itself. What about uh, the friendly farewell? Can we actually say that the, the two characters give themselves, uh, you know, Batman doesn't even know Kane is there. Yeah, I'd say it's not applicable. It's too much of a case of when is a team up, not a team up. There's no goodbyes, just Kane wrapping up in fine style. As he is wont to do. And then, and also just the realization in a way that Batman, uh, you know, Batman realizes he'll never know the answers because this is a mystery. You know, it has to be, those tales have to be filled with a mystery, a secret, a mystery, or whatever. Each anthology had its barely justified sometimes, but <laughs> each one was telling a certain brand of stories. And these should be mysteries. So at the end, it is not explained. Not by Kane, not by Batman, who is the master of all the answers, the master detective. No one can answer these questions because that's the that's the House of Mysteries brand. Very, very true. Batman doesn't even try to work things out. He's just very, very accepting. We'll take a break for a couple of promos, and we'll be back with our bonus team-ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics, do you dare enter the Cave of Mystery? 
Every month, your host, Bruce Kane, brings you an anthology of mystery stories starring a slew of Amalgam's best detectives, The Secret of Abel Dibney, Goldie the Demon Detective, Elvira TV Detective, Even Murder She Committed, and many, many more. The highest quality of who done it, how done it, and why done it in every issue. your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight, the podcasting hour. We're back. Our final feature, the bonus team-up in which each of us proposes a perfect House of Mystery team-up. So what do you have for us, Martin? Well, Siskoid, I would go for the House of Mystery and Danny the Street. The Doom Patrol's bizarro property pops up next to the House of Mystery, and sitcom fun ensues as Kane continually stymies Danny's attempts to cheer up the old neighborhood with colour and camp. That was, That's a good idea, because that was on my shortlist. That's one of the team-ups I thought of, but I didn't have a story to go with it. I think you cracked it. I think that could be pretty funny. And Danny can appear in the dreaming. There, there's no limit to where Danny can show up. So I think that would work as a sort of one-off Sandman kind of era uh, House of Mystery story for sure. Hey. What did I end up with? I also went with a sentient or semi-sentient architecture. <laughs> so uh, I'm putting the House of Mystery with Fortress Lad. In other words, with the Legion Clubhouse. Uh, so Crane crashes the 30th century, why not, to run a competition of tall tales from that era. So we never see, you know, sometimes they t- delve into science fiction a little bit, twists on sci-fi tales that can be horror-y, but not a whole lot of it. You know, usually it's like contemporary stories or more gothic, turn-of-the-century kind of stuff. So the Legionnaires sit around, they tell campfire stories, basically, and then he he comments on them with his usual snark, uh, reveals further ironies. Uh, you know, his usual shtick, but it would be sort of a, like a Legion special or a 30th century special of horror tales from, you know, the wizard's world or the, the dark places in the universe. It would have that, that horror feel except updated a thousand years in the future. That's pretty good. Yeah. And arm fall off boy could perhaps provide the body horror. <laughs> You could have the, the Legionnaires acting as monsters and sort of an Elseworlds kind of feel to it, you know, like a, like a fairy tale kind of kind of thing. And maybe you got poor Fortress Lad sort of being conscious of all this, you know, somehow. So they're just like the ultimate mystery of their clubhouse being haunted is maybe part of it. Well, that's it for, for us, really. Uh, thanks for teaming up with me, Martin Gray. Tell us uh, what you're working on these days. Uh, just the usual comic review, blogging malarkey too dangerous for a girl. I'm mostly harmless. Right. Uh, well, is uh, is the Leviathan uh, event over by now, is it? Well, we've just had a time of talking issue five that we all thought was going to have the revelation of who is Leviathan, but it sort of had a semi, this might be a revelation, but I'm not convinced. So one more issue <laughs> okay. to go to it. It's still going on, so Dr. Ange can keep theorizing entertainingly. Because basically that's how I'm following the event, is just you and Ange going back and forth. <laughs> 
<laughs> with spinning theories or uh or in your case you know doing reviews of the event i'm not i'm not reading it but uh i'm living it vicariously through the both of you <laughs> it's actually it's it's surprisingly entertaining i'm you know if mr benders can stick the landing i'd be very very pleased if not it's been really good reading good look and read and we'll see look optimism well at least fun to theorize and it's just like a conversation piece whether it it works out at the end or not like uh like the lost tv show or something absolutely you know and, you know again it's like you know brings us back to the days of things like you know who who is sensor girl you know good comic book mysteries just love that sort of thing i won't be satisfied until i see you know hashtag leviathan theories in the brian bendis book i think Anders earned that <laughs> And it could happen. That's the kind of thing that Bendis would would probably be able to do. Thanks again for uh, for being with me on on Halloween week. You know, you can go back to whatever shouting things in the street as <laughs> Jack Shiner Maggie, <laughs> as you folk are wont to do in the Highlands. But uh, we don't live in the Highlands. I don't. I, yeah, I, you're I, more to the south of that. Yeah. I, well, I'll stick around for people's feedback on the previous episode. Well, happy Halloween, and remember, always have the apostrophe in there. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994. Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis? And how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. So this is your feedback on our previous episode. The team-up was Superman and Arion. The real-world team-up was Clinton Robison and myself. We talked about DC Comics Presents number 75. Chris Franklin is first here. He admits he never really read any Arion. A lot of people will admit this uh, through the course of these uh, comments. Uh, he says my only exposure to him was in Who's Who and Crisis. Even though I normally bought DCCP, I don't have this issue. Given Clinton's love for it, maybe I should pick up an issue or two in the dollar bins at my comic shop. The art by Dersima is certainly lovely. I agree with you, Siskoid. I prefer Mandrake on non-superhero work. Even his Batman wasn't my cup of tea, of course. His Spectre run with Ostrander is top-notch. I notice... GLGL, PBHN, swipe on the splash as Superman flies in, but I think DC was actually directing folks to swipe those style guide poses at this point. We also have Captain Entropy says, Don't know how I missed this issue, but I'm glad to hear about it. Sounds like the characterization was on point. Great gag at the start of the Amalgam ad. And I'll give credit where credit is due. That was Clinton's idea. Ward Hill Terry also appreciated the twist. Gothos Mansion says, well, I guess I'm one up on Chris. My only exposure to Arion was Crisis, Who's Who, and this issue. A lot of time, the team-ups were gateway drugs coming for the main hero and get an interest in the guest star. As a kid, the cool thing about DCCP when it started was getting to collect a Superman comic beginning at issue number one. Well, I actually have Whitman Comics Presents number one if you want to get technical. He says, thanks for featuring a more off-the-wall issue. And really, Gothos Mansion, if I had my way, th those would be the only issues I cover. And I think we showed that today. Let's look at Rob Kelly's comment. 
He says, slight correction on what we said. JLA217 was not one of my first comics, but it is definitely one of my favorite comics. It's a simple one and done with a sharp, fun script by Kupperberg and great art by Chuck Patton. I wish we had gotten more of these before the entire team was shoved aside in favor of JL Detroit. I like Kupperberg using his own characters as a backdrop, but it still works whether you were reading Arion at the time and I was not. Regarding this issue, I would have preferred Superman with an earring rather than a mullet. Brian Linton says, I'm only familiar with Arion in his later immortal guise. I first encountered him when he made a couple of appearances in Peter David's Aquaman, which caught my attention as a fantasy fan. This led me to pick up the Arion the Immortal series, where I enjoyed the angle of the grumpy old hero being called out of retirement. After hearing your coverage of this issue, I now want to find some of the original Arion Lord of Atlantis stories. Thank you. Tim Price says this was a fun issue, so thanks for covering it. I could see this being a gateway issue for more readers to start picking up Arion at the time, a sly but time-honored tradition in team-up books. And very nicely done. I've never read any Arion. You know, see, nobody has. But remember the ads from back then, and I've liked Jan Dracima's artwork elsewhere, so I'll add it to my ever-growing list of comics to try on the app. If nothing else gets added, I'll have to read them all by the time the Legion is founded. Excellent. Thanks for Clinton for sharing his fandom for this character. And that's exactly what makes this show fun. And finally, Martin Gray says, I read Arion from the start of his series and loved the sumptuous art and different take on Atlantis. The characters were great fun and the stories diverting, plus magnificent logo. This DCCP wasn't hugely memorable, but certainly was entertaining. I hate that Arion was a bad guy recently. I can recommend Arion the Immortal highly, and it was quirky, but not so self-consciously wacky that Rob would hate it. These comments and this entire episode were sponsored by Alan W. Wright. And the way he got to do that was to sponsor the show specifically on Patreon. Uh, we do have a Patreon page here at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. If you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards including getting on that brave and bold list like Alan has. Thank you, Alan. And a reminder that you can leave us comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow Fire and Water's Facebook page or on Twitter. The account is FW Podcasts. And come back next time for another amazing superhero team-up. Because after all, justice is a team effort. 